It is uh, my distinct uh, pleasure and honor uh, to uh, uh, introduce um, a great uh, uh, American patriot, a great Marine Corps general, uh, and a great intellectual. And the last uh, is something which I have discovered over the last uh, um, seven years. Uh, Jim Mattis and I have known each other um, and exchanged ideas back and forth. Uh, this is a man who owns more books than I do. Uh, it's a library of about 7,000 books, uh, which he uh, – <laughs> I, I should explain that, that General Mattis is unmarried, which uh, is a major help in terms of, uh, uh, of the yeah. family budget. Uh, um, even I, with my uh, uh, British uh, Oxford uh, uh, wife with a, uh, a Ph.D. in history uh, – um, uh, sometimes have to explain some of the things I buy. Uh, General Mattis answered in terms of his book uh, uh, um, uh, purchases to no one. I, I think w what's particularly interesting about General Mattis is a deep intellectual curiosity, um, which is not typical of anybody in any profession in the United States. Uh, and so with that sort of in introduction, let me turn the stage over to General Mattis uh, um, uh, for his comments. Thanks, Wick. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to sit here because I like the most informal sort of setting. Uh, what I'd like to do is talk for a little bit, kind of close the gap between us, throw out some nuggets and perhaps incite some challenges back and forth. I think uh, you have heard enough about historical examples about uh, hybrid warfare that we can move kind of into the the current practice, and, and just open it up to anything that's on your mind right now. Uh, I'm not a member of the Marine Corps. I'm a member of the United States Marine Corps. We belong to you, and I'm especially happy to see some of the young people in this room here. Uh, too often we think that national security is something that is oriented primarily to the military or primarily to old, studied people who read all about dead Germans or something like that. And we need some young people with some vigor coming in. Uh, and I, there are going to be times for you young people as you deal with this, whether it be uh, on active duty uh, in the military or you study this, and it's, it's going to get a little depressing to you. You're going to say, man, after 5,000 years, why are we still fighting? And you can go back to Thucydides and look at honor, fear, and interest and all, but it, it can become depressing. But stay optimistic. Uh, there are no monuments raised to pessimists. Uh, so stay optimistic, stay with it, and we need your fresh ideas. And uh, also in this regard, uh, you heard General Yamaguchi this morning. Now, out of, uh, out of the bloody Pacific War, uh, the United States Marine Corps and the Japanese Army met repeatedly in the worst possible conditions and under some of the most vicious fighting in the history of this planet. To this day, the relationship now between the, the Japanese Self-Defense Force and the United States Marine Corps is one of, of fondness and respect, I would say even affection. Uh, we just celebrated recently the anniversary of the uh, 65th anniversary of Iwo Jima, an absolutely iconic fight between our two nations. And at that anniversary, as every year now, there are both Japanese veterans and American veterans. There are Japanese families who lost loved ones, American families. And you can create a better peace if you keep the faith and keep at it. And the reason I bring this up is uh, we're in a time when the Western democracies are getting tired of war. 
And I just suggest to you that uh, if we want to pass on these values to our children that grew out of the Enlightenment, then we are going to have to have some people who are willing to use old-fashioned, in some ways even ancient values, uh, and stay strong and endure the danger and discomfort of protecting those values, or we will not maintain them. Uh, I have dealt with this enemy that we're currently up against since 1979. That's longer than some of you have been alive. I, I started as a young captain in that part of the world. I've studied the Mideast. I've got many Arab uh, friends. I've, I've fought there repeatedly. I'll just tell you, this enemy means what they say. And they are going to use hybrid forms of warfare because if you take us on at 15,000 feet, uh, we are going to blow you out of the air. <clears throat> if you take us on with the U.S. Army in the open desert, uh, we will annihilate you, what little bit the aviators leave above, above ground. If you take us on in the high seas, we'll burn your ships to the waterline. So they've done what the paradox of war tells us enemies have always done. They have shifted to our perceived weakness. And if we overcorrect, we will actually incite conventional war because we shifted too far. And it's the balancing act that was very well articulated earlier uh, that we have got to maintain. Uh, I've got uh, a number of things I want to just share with you, but if you decide that you're getting tired of listening before I get tired of talking, one of you young folks wave your arm and say, that's enough, let's go to Q&A right now, okay? And we'll, we'll do that so we stay attuned to a back and forth, a dialogue here, not a monologue. I turned down 95% of these requests to go speak, and that includes the places where there are thousands of people, uh, and the reason I came to Mershon Center really goes back to something Margaret Mead said when she says, never underestimate the ability of a small group of committed people to change the world. In fact, in the history of the world, that's the only thing that has changed the history, changed the course of events. And Mershon Center is a serious place where there's serious thinking going on. And a small group of you coming out of here, a school of thought formulating here, can be a catalyst to great things. And don't doubt this. Uh, democracy, the worst form of government, except for all the rest we've tried in this world, uh, is one that's very, very uh, permeable to ideas coming in because of the nature of democracy. That a better idea will always be the worst democracy, probably, or a worse idea in a democracy, probably faster than in any other form of government due to its very nature. Uh, I like history because I oftentimes can see furthest ahead if I can remember what happened before. There are times, and for you young officers, I'll just share this with you, or soon-to-be officers, uh, there are times when I have looked out of a Navy P-3 airplane over Afghanistan at night where I circled for several hours, and I knew exactly what I was going to do to the enemy. I didn't care how brave they were. I didn't care what they did at this point. They'd revealed an, a, uh, an absence of thought and I was going to exploit it, and it was going to be a bloody awful time for the enemy. It was that clear, and it wasn't because I suddenly had some epiphany, which run around Washington, D.C. all the time. Everybody has an epiphany when they get caught in bed with somebody else's wife, you know what I mean? <laughs> the reason I had, I had that conviction there was, quite bluntly, uh, I'd read so many times, so many different ways to go after an enemy, and I knew exactly what I was going to do. So here at Mershon Center, where you try to take very complex issues about this tragedy that we call conflict war and try to merge them, we have to remember we're out for a better peace. And oftentimes, it's small groups like this that serve 
as the catalyst and were reminded that we did have a Continental Army, a Continental Navy, a Continental Marine Corps before we had a, comp uh, a country. And if we ever lose sight of the fact that we had to fight for this to have it, then our enemies, and there are real enemies out there, I've dealt with them, uh, there are people who really believe girls don't have the right to go to school. They really believe that. You're not going to talk them out of it and say, oh, no, they don't really believe it. If we just have a little barbecue in the backyard, we'll get over it. There are some people with irreconcilable views of the future. And hybrid warfare is their chosen way now to exploit their views and try to bring those, those views forward into some form of tyranny. And that's all it is. We are dealing with tyranny today, and we have very few people in Brussels or London or Washington, D.C., who are willing to call it what it is. In false religious garb, we have people who are continuing the same thing we fought in World War I when it was militarism. World War II is fascism. The Cold War and hot wars <clears throat> when it was communism. This is just another form of tyranny is all it is. And I'm delighted if you want to get in to some of our strategy today in dealing with hybrid warfare in a Q&A. To, uh, to share with you my thoughts uh, on what we're doing. Uh, I think a shared understanding of the problem is always necessary because the more time we spend on the problem definition, uh, as a Jesuit would say, to a very uh, specific level of detail, the easier it is then to solve the problem. And if you don't do this right, if you don't do it right up front, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it doesn't matter how many years we've been on this planet, if you don't do serious thinking about the fighting you're going into, you can actually conduct a war, invade a country, pull down a statue, and then say, now what do I do? Sound familiar? Okay. And it was my unit that pulled down the statue, so I have some specific knowledge of this. Um, but <clears throat> I'm, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not hung up on the term hybrid warfare. I use irregular warfare in my current job because fate has dropped me into a position of some authority due to some modest success in the military where I need some magnet to pull people away, their thinking away from the American way of war, of, of conventional industrial type war. And so we use irregular warfare for that. <clears throat> but what happened uh, on our way to the party, so to speak, we were studying a couple of recent fights, one in South Lebanon, uh, Second Lebanon War, and the other was the Russia-Georgia conflict. I was a NATO officer at the time. I gave that job up. I had two jobs for a couple of years. Gave that one up a few months ago. But in studying South Lebanon, what we found was a largely irregular war that had high-tech and conventional aspects, heavy high-tech and conventional aspects. A, uh, a corvette of the Israeli Navy is taken out by an anti-ship cruise missile, probably provided uh, from Damascus. Uh, at the same time, IEDs are going off with the detonation, uh, the, the people detonating them, hiding among the people in civilian clothes, very irregular. Chest-rigged uniform, basically, counter uh, light infantry counterattacking against Israeli forces. At the same time, they're using signals intelligence on the front lines when undisciplined Israeli soldiers are calling mom saying we're going to attack in two hours I'll call you when it's over and immediately they put out the word here they come and they're waiting for them and they they chop up the Israelis uh, so we we knew there had been some mixing of the types of war there but that was kind of eye-opening to see the level of technology 
and even uh, conventional tactics mixed in in the same geographic area at the same time. I flew into Georgia a little while after their, uh, their fight with the Russians, and I met with the Georgian officers who had conducted the fight. It was very interesting because here the Russians conducted and, and changed a border in Europe using force of arms, something NATO was in such disbelief over they couldn't even confront it intellectually. And what happens is the Russians conduct a conventional sloppy mass type conventional fight with significant irregular warfare aspects. Uh, they do cyber attacks. They use the Vostok Battalion. Uh, for those of you not aware of it, it is Russian officered, Russian equipped, Russian paid. And it's got some of the biggest uh, thugs and, and animals you can imagine. Uh, they move into an area. They intentionally burn, pillage, rape. And then in comes the Russian army. And suddenly, here we are to, to calm everything down. See, we Russians were the good guys. Uh, so it was a very interesting uh, phenomenon for us to study two different conflicts, find one was heavily conventional with significant irregular aspects, the other one was heavily irregular, was largely irregular with conventional aspects, and you're seeing this very blurring. And so I like the word hybrid because it gives me a mental model, but ultimately war is war. The fundamental nature of war is not going to change any sooner than the fundamental nature of water or oxygen changes. It is what it is, the fundamental nature. The character of war is going to continue to adapt and change as it does based on technology and culture and all sorts of currency uh, kind of issues that, that are uh, part and parcel of the world in which we live. So while we have no official definition for hybrid warfare, I think it does give us a mental model and we all need some kind of mental model in order to address the world around us. And I can't find a better one right now. I'm eager if there is a, if there is a, a, better, uh, a better model out there because, again, problem definition is significant if you really want to solve a problem. Uh, if you don't identify the problem clearly, you probably are not going to solve the right problem. Uh, Frank Hoffman's uh, definition, he says, adversaries simultaneously and adaptively employ a fused mix of conventional capabilities, irregular tactics, terrorism, and criminal behavior in the battle space harnessed together to obtain their political objectives. And I have probably just laid out, probably just laid out the challenge for you young people who are going on active duty in the military in the next few years. That's probably what you'll face. Yet at the same time, it was again, as was pointed out this morning, <clears throat> The British Army comes out of the Boer War around 1902-1908, and they're saying, look, we have got to be ready now for insurgency warfare. War between states is so injurious, it's so expensive, it's over. We're not going to have any more conventional wars. 1908, they were still writing like that. And you know what happens in August 1914. And now, intellectually caught flat-footed, all they can do is send their boys into barbed wire machine guns and get them mowed down. They don't even know how to confront the situation they face. So you cannot overcorrect. There's something, I had a psychiatrist come down when I commanded a, divi a Marine division, and I had her, she didn't know anything about the military. I had just gotten back from Iraq, brought the division home. I'd gotten a warning order. We were to go back in 
to a place called Al Anbar, Fallujah, Ramadi, the Sunni Triangle. Uh, and so I said, I want you to go wander around and come tell me what you think. And she gave me a term called dramatic instance fallacy, and it's something all historians can help the military guard against. War is very dramatic. For those who go to it, it is very personal. Uh, it's got a lot of boredom, but the first time you draw down a weapon and blow away your fellow man is not an in insignificant moment to you. It is dramatic. Uh, it's an instance that's burned into your mind. It will never dim. It will be there just as fresh as if it happened five minutes ago, 50 years later. But it's a fallacy if you think that all war is like that. And she said, you have people here who take their worst day of what they went through before, and they're planning on it being that bad or worse. What it eventually turns into is what? Fighting the last war. Dramatic instance fallacy. It is so burned into you, you cannot let go of it emotionally. So only intellectually can you overcome it. And that is the important thing that you historians bring to us because, frankly, many times in the military, you get so busy doing what you must do, uh, the brilliance and the basics that apply no matter what kind of war you fight, and adapting to the current fight you're in, you need someone like you, we need someone like you to open our apertures and make us think more broadly and also to remind us what we're all about. And it's not how to fight a war well alone, it's how to fight a war well and create a better peace. Uh, I want to make a, uh, give you a couple quotes from Secretary Gates, a remarkably effective Secretary of Defense who has earned the respect uh, of all of us in the military today. We have had a very rocky civilian-military relationship lately, uh, to be candid with you. And by the way, I was uh, Secretary Perry's Executive Secretary when he was Secretary of Defense. I was Secretary Cohen's Executive Secretary. I then became the senior military assistant to Mr. DeLeon, the deputy secretary of defense when I was a one-star. Then uh, to Mr. Wolfowitz, I was his senior military assistant uh, before leaving, and I went to go fight in Afghanistan. Uh, I share that with you because I have seen the best and the worst of times. I'll just be right up front with you that one of the challenges we face in putting together a good counterinsurgency strategy is that for most of the 41 years I've worn this uniform, We've had a Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense who couldn't stand each other and wouldn't talk to each other, and we have paid a bloody price for that. Today, we do not have that problem, and Mr. Gates is an effective, very effective change maker in the department. Now, you can agree or disagree with him, but here are some of the things he has said uh, that our guiding precept will be balance, and he's looking at the signposts of Chechnya, Iraq, South Lebanon, Afghanistan, he wants a balance. No military has successfully transformed, modernized, adapted, absent one thing, and Dr. Murray, thank you for this. Uh, you articulate it most clearly, but I've got numerous historical examples. It must first identify the problem. Here is the problem we face today. How do we maintain nuclear deterrence, conventional superiority, while making irregular warfare a core competency of the U.S. military. And people who say you can't do both, I reject that. We cannot subdivide the military into smaller and smaller pieces doing specialized pieces of warfare because the enemy will simply move to the area that you're not specialized in. Uh, the, uh, the challenge that we face uh, is supported, though, by history. The British Empire 
was able to do both internal defense, hold on to the empire, and still fight externally using the same soldiers. The Roman Empire was able to do it. Due to the quality, and I don't know why we are continuing to draw such high-quality young troops for, for what has become a very unpopular war, at least in some quarters. Uh, the draft is still in effect, basically. Young men still sign up, I believe. I think you young guys, you still have to sign up at age 18. Uh, so the idea all along was we'd have the all-volunteer military, then of war we would then start the draft up, as we have in all of our significant fights. Nine years into this war, and the quality of the young people joining continues to climb. We are full up. Uh, I'll just give you an example. In the Marine Corps, if you want to join the Marine Corps right now, you basically have to wait about six months unless you get lucky and somebody falls out in order to go to boot camp. If you want to join the Marine Infantry, where we take 85 to 89 percent of our casualties in the U.S. military since 1945, you have to wait eight months. It's an even longer delay in order to get into the combat arms. So somehow, we are continuing to draw young people who look beyond the hot political rhetoric of a, of a negative uh, body politic and at times a, a mendacious media that actually works uh, with more of a focus on the falling shorts of the U.S. military and the apparent failings of its political leadership, of the Western political leadership, more so than on the enemy's murder and mayhem that they're creating around the world. But somehow... Uh, the enemy's operational rhythms are revealing. Our young people are continuing to rally to the colors. And if we get the concepts right, we're going to do okay. But let me just warn you about something. Uh, if you get the concepts wrong, and I'll give the example of effects-based operations embraced totally by the Israelis. Uh, by the way, embraced because they thought the Americans had done their homework. That's a quote. Uh, you end up with your boys uh, taking RPGs in the chest. And if you've got the concepts wrong, it's not going to help that you even have the better technology. The French had better tanks in 1940 than the Germans, and who won that one? So you've got to get the concepts right, and that, those concepts must be historically informed, must be historically informed, and then your, your intuition sharpened by guys that keep a few of us gray hair around because we've been through not one or two or five fights, but many more. We try to use our military intuition built on that historical appreciation to maintain the balance that Secretary Gates is calling for. Uh, I, want, I want to read one other quote uh, from Secretary Gates. Uh, the challenge we face is how well we can institutionalize the irregular capabilities gained and means to support troops in the theater that have been, for the most part, developed ad hoc and funded outside our, our base budget. That is how we take care of the current fight. I'll tell you one way to make sure the U.S. military does not transform correctly for the future. Lose the current fight. You lose the current fight, and we will have to put more troops in danger around the world because we have emboldened an enemy. And so it, now it comes down to how best do we do this and how well can we, uh, the leadership, identify to the American people uh, to whom we owe an accounting, that we know what we're doing and we're going to win. And I do use that word. Colonel Monsoor, the last time I saw him, Peter, uh, we were both wearing uh, uh, much less flamboyant clothing. It was in a very hot place far, far away. The bottom line is uh, he was one of a handful, a very small handful of people who did not dabble in the military art. They mastered it. 
and we came in, and alongside a British lieutenant general named Graham Lamb and a handful of others, we broke the enemy's logic, and for the first time since this sweeping change of, of uh, fanaticism has, has uh, bedeviled the Islamic uh, region, we had an entire Arab population turn against our common enemies and come over to our side. They came over to our side at a time when in the press itself we had very little reason for optimism. In the press there were constantly people saying we're going to lose. And I do use the word victory. We've achieved victory in Iraq and now we'll see if the Iraqi people can exploit it politically and in a humane way. But reconciling war's grim realities with the aspirations of, of human beings is what we were good at because we ethically employed force. Now, you'll remember Abu Ghraib and you'll remember other things that the Western media has for some reason uh, tried to define the U.S. military with. The fact is, to the Arab people who saw us in their midst, those events did not define us. They saw the reality of what we were, and they didn't take those exceptions to the rule, exaggerate them and say, that, rep that represents the Americans. In a part of the world where they were brought up to dislike Americans, dislike Christians, this sort of thing. They found a largely Christian, all-American force in their midst. They watched the enemy. Even during the worst days of fighting in Fallujah, I would go back and meet with the sheikhs, and I would say, you've signed up with the wrong people. You're going to regret this. Now, it took a couple bloody years, but eventually the enemy making mistake after mistake, and we made mistakes too, but the difference is, as Winston Churchill points out, uh, the Americans... Uh, once they've exhausted all possible alternatives, we'll do the right thing. And we did, and the, and the Iraqi people saw us do the right thing. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a U.S. naval officer. I don't make the decision where to go. Uh, sincere, intellectually vigorous, honest, patriotic Americans say that was the dumbest thing we ever did to go to Iraq, and I will not disagree one bit. But the U.S. military will stand obedient to the commander-in-chief, to the president, to whoever the Constitution says is now representing the people of this country, and that's the way it is. And if a president says, I'm going to send you unilaterally into a country with weapons and the authority to stop certain things, we will obey him. And that president, by the way, was named Bill Clinton, and he sent us to Bosnia. For those of you who thought I was just talking about George Bush. So we, we do not apologize for what we do. We believe in this Constitution. We're not the perfect guys, but we are the good guys. And our value system must reflect that when we go into a fight. We cannot permit emotions and the bloody, awful time of, of, of going up against uh, an enemy that intentionally hides among innocent people and tries to draw fire on them. We cannot allow a degree of racism to seep in. We have got to keep true to our values and make certain that we represent the better angels of our nature, as Abraham Lincoln would put it, and not the racist values, that sort of thing. So uh, I think uh, I'd like to, I, I've got one other quote I want to give you from Secretary Gates, because uh, he, he really lines things up very well here uh, for this talk. Uh, just last week, by the way, he said, the black and white distinction between conventional war and irregular war is becoming less relevant in the real world. I would define the real world as the world that these, the, you folks who are going to be in uniform confront. Possessing the ability to annihilate other militaries is no guarantee that we can achieve our strategic goals. 
Conflict most likely will range across a broad spectrum of operations and lethality, where even near-peer competitors will use irregular or asymmetric tactics, and non-state actors may have weapons of mass destruction or sophisticated missiles. I was in Israel a little while ago, and believe me, they are very, very vulnerable to Hezbollah. That non-state actor has more missiles than almost any other country in the world in their arsenals. So we're going to have to deal with that sort of thing. Uh, what I'd like to do at this point is, is pause and see if we can go into question and answer. And if not, I've still got, you know, generals. We can talk on forever. Uh, so uh, let's just open it to questions here for a minute. And uh, Peter's going to monitor, uh, kind of make this thing happen, discipline a little bit. Uh, but I like a little chaos and anarchy, too. So if you want to have at it, I'm, I'm all game. <laughs> all right. We'll take uh, Q&A at this time. In the back, yes. <clears throat> Thanks, Lydia. Uh, let me just tell you, in the Marines' mission statement, uh, it says uh, you're here to seize advanced naval bases. We're part of the naval forces, obviously. We, we operate from the sea and do such other duties as the president may direct. Bingo. Uh, this is our mission. Uh, take the U.S. Marine Corps of 1910 Colonial Infantry, basically. It goes into 1917 fighting as part of Army Divisions. Uh, trench assault warfare, that sort of thing, comes out of there, goes back into small wars kind of things down in Central America. Some thinkers in the U.S. Navy are saying, you know, we're losing these war games. Let's create some aircraft carriers and assault troops, amphibious assault troops. The Marines do that. They go into Korea after World War II where they did all amphibious assault, and they're now really a second land army. They do counterinsurgency and up in I-Corps, which was largely against North Vietnamese by 1968. Uh, they're doing hybrid warfare there. You've seen them in Desert Storm. The bottom line is, you're, in this world, I can sum up everything I've learned, uh, Lydia, in 41 years of wearing this uniform uh, in three words when you go to war. Improvise, improvise, improvise. You've got to adapt. Uh, what you, what, here's what we must avoid for the U.S. military. We must avoid being dominant and irrelevant at the same time. Dominant in our chosen forms of war, fighting with iconic weapon systems, tank against tank, and this sort of thing, and irrelevant to the security of this country and the realm of ideas that we have. So you've got to be able to adapt. The Darwinian uh, point is, is apt for us. And we will continue on with whatever, wherever the enemy wants to fight. We'll follow him to the ends of the earth. We'll adapt, we'll train, we'll advise, we'll mentor, and we'll fight, and we'll fight well. Okay, John. Uh, yes, would you uh, discuss the possibility of, of the rise, rising itself <coughs> called the Iraq Syndrome, in which the chief lessons drawn out of Iraq and to a degree Afghanistan late on is let's just not do that again. After yeah. World War II, that was the attitude. We haven't done it after Korea. There's been no more Koreas after Vietnam Syndrome, which kept that from happening after Somalia Syndrome. Right. So if you, so if you think of, uh, from a politician's standpoint, the main lesson in public opinion, maybe, mm -hmm. the main lesson 
Yes, sir. You know, I would be happy. Uh, there's probably no one in this room more reluctant to go fight than me. But once in a fight, uh, I, I give it everything I've got. I think we should be very slow to make decisions like this. Will Rogers in the 1930s when Marines were being landed in Nicaragua and Honduras, this sort of thing, said it may surprise some people in Washington, D.C. to find that many countries are more comfortable having an imperfect government of their own rather than a perfect one foisted on them by us, by U.S. Marines. I, I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Our most successful strategies have been the most pragmatic, the most idealistic have let us down horribly because they're all often aspirational, unmatched either by uh, physical or spiritual resource of the American people. We have always been a, a, an idealistic people balanced by pragmatism. We have no moral obligation to do the impossible. And I think that uh, if we come out of this with a, a more nuanced, more critical view of when we should commit our forces, I think that is healthy. At the same time, uh, the enemy is going to continue to be there, the enemy of what I call the, the values that grew out of the Enlightenment. And there are going to be times when I know we're going to have to fight because I think Thucydides had it right about, you know, about... Uh, what you fear, and, you know, what you honor, self-interest, uh, because the nature of man has not changed, unfortunately, and it's not going to change anytime soon, I don't think. So we are going to have to be ready to fight across the range of military operations wherever the enemy chooses to do it. But there are opportunities because this enemy must make mistakes. They must do things that will alienate themselves if we'll take advantage of it and see that as an opportunity. If I say the word Beslan, how many of you know what I'm talking about? See a show of hands. Beslan. Now, if I asked that question and I was in Moscow right now, 100% of the hands would go up. Southern Russia, first day of school, 90 degrees, hundreds of kids being brought to school, and uh, fun, uh, fanatics take over the school, hold them in a very difficult rescue attempt. The Russian forces are unsuccessful. Hundreds of children, parents who've rushed to the school, faculty members are killed. Uh, why the next day didn't we have the director of FBI, director of CIA, director of Scotland Yard, director of Interpol in Moscow saying, we know you're hurting, we know your, your pride's been hurt, we're going to give you everything we've got. Hunt them down to the ends of the earth, kill every one of them. I, my point is, this enemy must continue to kill and kill and kill. They can't win at the ballot box non-traditional security partners will be available as this enemy continues on. If you young people, unhindered by the weary, weary past that some of us <clears throat> carry with us, see this as an opportunity, we, I mean, if FDR, a rather progressive president, right, to say the least, if he could make common cause with Joe Stalin to defeat Hitler, I would think that we can make common cause with people who would annihilate Manhattan if they had a chance. So I think there's a reason for optimism here because when we do go into fights in the future, I think we'll have a growing number of countries alongside us. Afghanistan right now, we've got 40-odd countries, 44, I think, three of which, Estonia, Netherlands, and Canada, have suffered higher per capita casualties than the United States. So we're going to continue to fight these kinds of wars because the enemy gets a vote. But I think there's a reason to say that more and more of the load will be shared uh, across the international community. Does that answer, address your question? Yeah, well, Canada's leading, 
They are. Uh, all, all democracies uh, have their own internal, all politics are local. Uh, Netherlands is leaving as well. Uh, the, but I think at the same time, we sit here in a country that thinks we won World War I. I'd suggest that after four years of bleeding themselves dry against militarism, uh, some other democracies held the line until we came. And uh, World War II, we watched France overrun and said, it's not our problem. Those, those aren't our values being attacked. Sometimes it's our turn in the barrel to hold the line. And sometimes it's other nations. Right now, because of our economic might, at least I think we have economic might, uh, it, it's our turn in the barrel. But I think, too, my headquarters in, uh, in Ramadi, my 1st Marine Division headquarters, were guarded by Tongan Marines. And I went and said, why on earth are you here? And they said, it's our obligation to the international community. I, there are ways where this enemy is going to solidify opposition to them because they must make mistakes. They cannot help it if we'll take advantage of it. By the way, did the Tongans ever sing for you? Yes. Aren't they awesome? They're the most wonderful singers going. They're awesome. You could close your eyes and forget about the thousand flies on your face. and <laughs> You'd have thought you were in, in the South Pacific with palm trees. There were palm trees. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, sir, I have a question for you in regards to the current economic situation in Europe and the fight in Afghanistan. Will this um, involve the United States in committing more troops because of Europe's inability and, mm -hmm. you know, of course, Germany's balking of sending more trainers into Afghanistan? Yeah. Um, besides looking at the future, I also have the authority over 1.1 million U.S. troops, Navy, aircraft carriers, Army brigades, Air Force fighter wings, uh, Marine expeditionary units and all. Uh, we have just had to order a battalion of paratroopers, Army paratroopers, into Afghanistan to pick up some of the training duties. Uh, but Mr. Gates uh, has made it very clear to our NATO allies that this is not done to take the load off you. It's simply to help you find time to figure out how to do this, how to come up with the trainers. Uh, I'm guardedly optimistic that they will come through. <clears throat> but due to the nature of their parliamentary systems, due to the fractious nature of the party systems they have, uh, those governments can fall if they demand very much sacrifice, I think, from their people. A small splinter party pulling out, the government collapses, and it's a lot to ask of any government to do something that's going to end its authority. Uh, in Netherlands, the government just fell a few months ago over this, and they're having to pull their troops out now, for example. And this is a real concern. Uh, I think that we, have go we are going to, and this is, includes the military leaders, but certainly all of you uh, learned people, we are going to have to get better at articulating what's at stake here. President Sarkozy put it best. He's at, there's an annual conference there, ladies and gentlemen, for a decade now called Verkunda. It's the Munich Security Conference. And we're, in his very animated way, President Sarkozy stood up on the stage one day and he said the, the fundamental question is, does Europe want to defend its values or does Europe want to be left alone? He said once we answer that question, then a lot of other things will become very simple. Right now, I think that due to the complexity of this war, of these hybrid wars, especially within the, in the information age, uh, it has been very difficult for political or military leaders to articulate a strategy or to articulate what's at risk. And until you do that in a democracy, it's quite understandable they might be reluctant to, uh, to commit to it. 
But we are now growing even lance corporals, I think, who can proclaim the nobility of what we're doing better than some spokesman in uh, Western capitals. And I think that that sort of thing is going to start building, especially as more and more of these young veterans come home. They run for office themselves, and their voices are increasing the herd. They move up, as they always do after wars, into corporate uh, leadership, academic leadership, political leadership, that sort of thing. So uh, maybe we have to buy some time here. Carl. As we look to the future, one of the things that uh, scares me most and I great perfect clear views on is what's going on in Mexico. Mm -hmm. The armed forces of the United States have not have had to go up against our own people in many, many years. And the reality of that for the Mexican armed forces is fairly fundamental. It is what they have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. Seems that the degree of that drug-infused uh, culture has seized a grip on parts of the United States as well, mm -hmm. posing problems of that kind to the American military in the future. When we talk about hybrid warfare, it's a hybrid warfare, it's hybrid war of a different, fundamentally different kind, law enforcement versus military versus intelligence, and there's all three of those dimensions. So as we prepare ourselves for potential future missions, is that one you see on the Uh, the question, for those of you in back, has to do with Mexico, the drug war, and what that pretends, basically, for the U.S. military's involvement in the future. Uh, two years ago, did the joint operating environment, and that's a document I put out that's speculative. It's not U.S. policy, but it speculated that, that Mexico was going to be a real problem for us uh, and perhaps a national security problem. Um, the first point I would make is the destabilizing influence in Mexico is the insatiable appetite of the American public for illicit drugs, which is sending billions of dollars down there, corroding every aspect of Mexican society, their industry, their politics, their law enforcement, their judges, the prisons, everything is being corroded by the American dollars going south. People think, well, I'm just buying a little marijuana, I'm just getting a little of this or a little of that, whatever the drug is, methamphetamine, whatever it is. <clears throat> In fact, uh, I think it'd be a lot better if we do what the, I pick up Mexican newspapers sometimes from friends who go down there and show the Mexican police with their hands and their feet cut off while they were still alive, uh, you know, and this sort of thing that's going. That's what we're, in effect, doing. Until we address that, uh, that supply of money going south and destroying a neighboring country, then I, there is no military solution. There's not even a law enforcement solution to it. Just it, it is what it is. Inside the United States, the U.S. military, absent a catastrophic decapita decapitation of perhaps a state governor in a capital by a nuclear blast something who can't ask for help, the federal government can only send in the military in a supporting role after being requested. I think that this will remain a law enforcement issue inside the United States forever, unless there's a specific tactical situation where you have to call in certain, there are certain Navy SEAL teams and certain Army Special Forces that are designed to go in and help the FBI if the FBI's capability is over, overcome. Uh, so we're not going to be doing any arresting or anything like that short of martial law because of a Katrina or a nuclear hit on one of our cities. Uh, but I would, I would also say that with the Mexicans, every country has its own cultural baggage. We have some. 
uh, if you want to see why we can't do integrated warfare real well, State Department and DOD, just read the Federalist Papers, and you can see the problem is laid out very clearly right there. In Mexico, the Constitution, ladies and gentlemen, prohibits their army from working with our military. They are prohibited. Now, we can do some things with them, but we cannot exercise with them, for example. Prohibited. So it's a very tentative sort of thing that we have to do, just like our Constitution prevents us from doing certain things. And respect for cultural differences is a fundamental part of understanding the unique aspects of each conflict. I think in this case we would be better off by bolstering our border police and increasing their relationship with the Mexican military, for example, uh, to a significant level, something more along the lines of the Italian Carabinieri kind of relationship of police to other forces. Uh, but we will have to be prepared uh, quietly to assist them. And I'll tell you that we have, between our forces right now, uh, a very mutually uh, trustworthy relationship. Without going into details, I can't in this room. Does that answer your question, Carl? Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, it's, it's a very fundamental problem, and I think some of you are aware that uh, the death of some lost contractors caused me to have to commit thousands of assault troops into a, a certain city called Fallujah. Um, the challenge is soldiers today, if we're going to keep an all-volunteer force, are a very expensive commodity. And you don't want them out picking up trash and collecting or... Uh, cooking meals and that sort of thing at the wages that we're paying today uh, in order to keep the highest quality forest in the history of the U.S. military, probably in the history of any military on earth. So having contractors is a natural outgrowth. You hire them for a short period, you don't pay them retirement. Uh, it, it makes a lot of financial sense. But we work in a different uh, office environment, so to speak. Uh, where the will of the enemy is to try and disrupt everything you're doing. And I don't think when the U.S. Army uh, looking for how could they maintain 10 divisions, and think about that, the U.S. Army has fewer infantrymen right now than New York City has policemen, okay, just to put it in context. These are the ones who do 90% of the fighting for us. Uh, so if you're going to save those, where can you say, well, we could save on cooks, okay? And we have a third country national working in one of our mess halls, come in with a suicide vest on, set it off, and 40 soldiers killed or wounded. We work in a different environment. And you've got to take what makes good business sense, match it against the, the unique aspects of the battlefield, the most morally bruising conditions on earth, and make sure what you're doing makes objective <coughs> military sense for effectiveness, not just efficiency uh, so uh, we, we have limited authority over them, frankly. Uh, there are some that we have non-judicial or, excuse me, court-martial authority over. They sign up for that. 
in certain cases. But the relationship right now is uh, okay, but mostly because it's not stressed too badly. Uh, if it were to be stressed badly, uh, I, I fear that they would be a bigger burden as we have to evacuate them, and, and they would actually become part of the problem at that point if we go into a more mobile form of warfare. Right now, we're settling into these base camp ideas, and I think it's a very dangerous idea to think we're going to continue this reliance in the future. But I don't have an economic solution for it either. So it's going to be something we have to deal with, and we will deal with it imperfectly, and we'll try to muddle through is what I think will happen. General, part of the knock against contractors has been that they lack accountability. Do you think uh, in the wake of some of the more uh, celebrated cases in Iraq and, and contractors allegedly shooting mm-hmm. Iraqi civilians that this uh, aspect of, uh, of the legality of contractors on the battlefield has been addressed by DOD? No, it has not been sufficiently addressed. Uh, what we've got to do... You, For example, ladies and gentlemen, we have certain ships at sea, USNS, U.S. naval ships, not USS, not U.S. warships, and they cannot carry out belligerent acts. That's the way we make certain that at least under some signatories the Geneva Convention can be obeyed. Uh, As was mentioned earlier, we obey our, our, uh, our, our treaties, that sort of thing. That's what sets us apart. Uh, Right now, the treaties do not sufficiently address this issue, I don't think. And so what we've done is we've come up with patchworks where we give certain authorities protections, government service guarantees, that sort of thing. But frankly, I'm even confused about it. I'm supposed to be one of the people who's got some clarity on this thing, okay? So I'm still working on it. So. Yeah, if there are better terms, I'm all I'm all ears. Uh, the the way I would address your question, Rick, is uh, if you can't ride two horses, you got to get out of this circus because it's very complex. Okay, and you've got to be able to ride two horses at once. Uh, sometimes there are no good guys, and there are no bad guys. It seems like everybody's in the middle. I'll tell you, I've slept peaceably among murderers who were fighting on our side. I'll just tell you that right up front. Uh, it is a it is a difficult uh, it's a difficult situation as I'm sure it was when FDR decided to make common cause with Stalin at the grand strategic level, and it is certainly more so at the tactical level where literally you're sleeping alongside people uh, for whom you have uh, a certain degree of skepticism about their ethical values and that sort of thing and whether or not they're even on your side. Uh, the best example I can give for this was Lieutenant General Graham Lamb, uh, UK, British Army, who on General Petraeus' staff is probably the individual most 
critical to breaking the enemy's logic. And he came in and he sized up what was going on there in Baghdad. Uh, we've been, he and I have been friends for years. And I was talking to him and he said, I've got it. He said, here's the problem. He said, it's not former regime elements, it's not former Baathists, it's not dead-enders, it's, it's not terrorists, it's none of that. It's either reconcilable or irreconcilable. Move as many people as you can into reconcilable. Remove all those things that are driving people crazy to support the insurgency, frustrating them, uh, infuriating them, all of this stuff. And the irreconcilables, that's what people who wear these uniforms get paid to deal with. So I think that is the way to go forward. Uh, all wars eventually come to an end, so how do you set ourselves up for, for the best possible peace? Not the war to end all wars. I, I've lost sight of that objective uh, from my reading of history. But I think if you look at reconcilable and irreconcilable, you find people that uh, we can deal with. And I, I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I used to go and, and talk at night with these sheikhs, and I knew that some of them personally and many of their, their boys were fighting us. I knew some were trying to kill me personally from our signals intelligence. And I'd tell them, you're in the wrong outfit. Uh, a couple years ago, I was back there, and three of them came up, and they're all dressed nice in their man dresses and three-piece suits, depending on whether they went Western or stayed traditional in their dress. And we all laughed together. I said, God, you guys look a lot better than you did in those orange jumpsuits. I put you in a Abu Ghraib, you know. Uh, and my point is that we, we that we could look over, we could look beyond the mistakes that we had made as Americans that drove some of them to that, the mistakes they had made in signing up with Al Qaeda, and together now, as one of them told me, this is a fight to the death. Uh, that we're we're with you right to the end. We're we're going to kill all of them, uh, the Al Qaeda, uh, the the forced marriages. You and I call it rape the uh, cutting off of boys' heads and throwing them on a hospital steps, the killing of a sheikh who was not even on our side and leaving his body for four days in the August sun in a religion where you bury before nightfall. Uh, the enemy made mistake after mistake, and as the clarity grows, you will know who the enemy is. It's hard to define at times, but you will know who they are, and more importantly, the people in the local area will know who they are. Unlike Vietnam, uh, and every war is different. I've, I've never known an enemy until I fought them, no matter how many intelligence reports I read. But unlike Vietnam, where, you know, men and women run on hope, you know, you hope for something better, right? I mean, that, that's, what we, that's what gives us much of our motivation. There they could hope in South Vietnam, if Uncle Ho comes in and the communists, I get my own, you know, little plot of land, maybe... Uh, it may be a commune, but at least I'll have some land. I won't have to just pay all the rice I make to some jerk from Saigon or something. Maybe my kids can go to school. Maybe quality of life will go up. In Afghanistan, for example, they know what life under the Taliban's like. I landed there in November of 2001 with Marines. And remember, September 9-11, basically 70-some days later, we're there fighting. And in southern Afghanistan, in the Pashtun area, in the area that they had controlled for five years, in the area where not one girl went to school for five years, in an area where guys could not shave even if they wanted, in that area, those people came out and were helping us. We, we, we made a raid once. We had to fall back very quickly. We were outnumbered in those days. 
and we're coming across the stream. One of my vehicles broke down, and the people all came out of a local village, and they helped the Marines get the vehicle out of the stream and up the, the embankment, and so the Marines could tow it on out of the area. These were people literally willing to risk their lives for us at that point. So they knew who the enemy was. And I think that's what we sometimes have to key off of. We don't want other people telling us who to fight and who not to fight all the time. We make our own decisions on that. But we can identify this enemy. It's hard to at times, but the bottom line is anybody who kills innocent people uh, on purpose is probably starting off on the wrong side of the foot with the Americans. That's, that's a good starting point right there. So you can, we can figure this thing out. It's going to be at times shifting and we have to be open to those who are willing to come over to our side and say, let bygones be bygones. Don't say once they've fought us, we're never going to declare peace between you and I. We'll, you know, it, it, you know, no. Always be willing to move them into the reconcilable and hug them on in. For the first few weeks at Al-Anbar, after, uh, after many of these boys started deserting at their sheikh's insistence from the enemy, it was a very lucrative time against the enemy as they guided us right into their old rally points, arms caches, explosive caches. It was a very, very wonderful time. I'll just put it that way without uh, getting And regarding the, <clears throat> the sons of Iraq, that was the other thing that uh, General uh, Lamb told us is that uh, you know, having fought the IRA and, and negotiated with them as well, as he said, hey, look, you know, you, you don't reconcile with your friends. They're already your friends. You have to reconcile with your enemies, mm -hmm. and thus the uh, shifting nature of these uh, the boundaries of the alliances in this kind of war. We can take one more question, and then we're going to have to wrap up. So, any? Uh, Go ahead, young lady. Uh, great point. Uh, first of all, most of what we have to do for, for uh, irregular warfare and this hybrid side, I think, is less expensive in many ways, except for the personnel, which you are quite right on. Uh, no nation in history has maintained its military effectiveness if it did not maintain its economic house in order. And so I added to the Joe, the Joint Operating Environment this year, uh, a piece on economics going back and using the uh, historic examples, I think, of the Habsburgs and, and others of what happens when you get this thing messed up. Uh, so I think the, a couple of short answers are we're going to have to get our strategy correct. We have not had a national strategy since 1991. We're going to have to figure one out. And strategy is not just aspirational. Well, I believe in mom, apple pie, democracy for all, a Chevrolet in every garage. Is Chevrolet still... Producing <laughs> um, what it is is it's a matching of political ends and military means. So I think what's going to happen is we are going to do less, certainly less on our own, but less overall, but we're not going to do it less well. The most important thing is to keep the highest quality people in the military who can operate across that range of military operations 
from irregular to sophisticated, high threat, uh, high technology, and can move back and forth wherever the enemy is. If we have good people whose spirits are still strong, then we can make this thing work. So we will do less, but we will not do it less well. That's how we how we handle this. But we can we can afford to defend America, but we're going to, have to get a lot more exquisite in making decisions about where and when we used military force. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, again, thank you. Uh, it's great to be here uh, with you, and I hope that's of some value to you. Uh, I really enjoyed sitting in here this morning. I'll tell you that uh, I like learning something, and you guys are some bright young folks asking these questions. So thanks very much for having me here.